This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Physiological, the podcast where we explore some of the exciting science behind the mechanisms of life. For this episode, our theme is metabolism. Now, I don't know about you, but metabolism is a word I feel I hear all the time, but probably couldn't give you a physiological definition for. Um, It's something to do with converting food into energy, right? Yeah, so metabolism is a term that's used to describe all the chemical reactions involved in maintaining the living state of cells and also the organism. So that's the breaking down of substrates, like breaking down our food into energy. But it also involves uh, building molecules, for example, growing tissue. And in this episode, we'll be learning about the benefits of something called brown fat. And we'll be exploring how ingesting carbohydrates during exercise may increase performance in runners and cyclists. I'm Amy Warnock. And I'm Emily Wilde. Now, let's get physiological. So you may have heard of that term carb loading, meaning eating carbohydrate heavy food, typically before some kind of endurance activity. It's been shown to improve performance in some instances. We spoke to Alistair Black, a researcher at Leeds Beckett University, investigating carbohydrate and endurance exercise to tell us more about the effects of ingesting carbohydrates during exercise. We know a lot historically about the benefits of carbohydrate ingestion during exercise. So we know that increases uh, exercise capacity in endurance trials and we know that increases exercise performance in time trial. Um, Usually in cyclists, a lot of the research that we see is done in cyclists, not just in carbohydrate research, but in quite a lot of physiological research. And we then tend to apply those findings to other sports, such as running and team sports, etc. When we take part in endurance or aerobic exercise, our body relies on our reserves for energy. Fat and carbohydrate are the main substrates that we depend on for fuel. And oxidation describes a process by which we convert these substrates into energy to keep us going which has increased during exercise. But do different types of exercise show different patterns in terms of the substrate we burn for fuel, fat or carbohydrate? And what effect does ingesting carbohydrate during exercise have on oxidation? When we look at independent studies that might look at just runners or just cyclists, we do see some common differences between running and cycling in terms of substrate oxidation. So we tend to see higher rates of fat oxidation when we're running and higher rates of carbohydrate oxidation when we're cycling in a placebo or an unfed condition. Uh, When we feed carbohydrate during exercise, those differences tend to be a lot smaller. So we see a reduction, a suppression in fat oxidation when we ingest carbohydrate, and an increase in total carbohydrate oxidation. So there appears to be a difference in substrate oxidation between sports, with running burning more fat and cycling burning more carbohydrate. And interestingly, ingesting carbohydrates seems to reduce these differences in substrate oxidation. And so Alistair and his colleagues set to investigate this in both runners and cyclists with and without carbohydrate ingestion in the form of a carbohydrate drink. So we had uh, our participants who were all triathletes, so they were trained in both cycling and running. We had them to exercise for two hours at 70% VO2 max. Uh, They did four trials, one with carbohydrate and one without in both cycling and running. Uh, And then after that, they completed a time trial. So they did a six-kilometre time trial on the treadmill or a 16-kilometre time trial uh, on the bike. 
We chose those distances to match the time to completion because one of the things that does affect substrate oxidation is the length of time that you're exercising for. Uh, and it turns out when we look at the data, we match them quite well because the times were similar. So what did they find in terms of substrate oxidation between cycling and running? We didn't find any significant differences between cycling and running in terms of fat oxidation. Um, we found that when you ingest carbohydrate, however, you do get a reduction in fat oxidation in both cycling and running. Uh, we found that exogenous rates of carbohydrate oxidation were similar between cycling and running, uh, and that fits in with all the other data that we've seen from other studies. Uh, but we only noticed a significant reduction in endogenous carbohydrate oxidation on the bike and not on the run. Exogenous carbohydrate is anything that you ingest, so that could be a gel, it could be a sports drink, for example. And endogenous carbohydrate is the stuff that we have inside our bodies, so that's our muscle glycogen and our liver glycogen as well. So they found that ingesting carbohydrates had an effect on cyclists, but not on runners in terms of endogenous carbohydrate oxidation. So what effect does this have on performance? The important part of our study then became the time trials. So what effect is that endogenous sparing uh, having on time trial performance in cycling? And is that different to running? Um, what we noticed, first of all, is that carbohydrate ingestion during two hours of exercise does improve subsequent time trial performance. So time trials got quicker on both the bike and the run. What was interesting again, though, was that we saw a 9% improvement in time trial performance on the bike versus placebo and only a 3% improvement uh, on the run versus placebo. Uh, and we attribute that to the increased availability of total carbohydrate uh, on the cycling time trial compared to the placebo condition, whereas on the run, there wasn't so much of a difference between total carbohydrate availability, so therefore the improvement in performance with additional carbohydrate was not so great. So it appears that ingesting carbohydrate improved performance in both cycling and running, but the improved performance was greater for the cyclists compared to the runners. So what does this mean for triathletes? In terms of the triathletes <clears throat> or the duathletes, um, might pick up this research it might highlight for them the importance of refueling during the cycle phase of the race rather than the run because one of the other things that we measured and a lot of studies have looked at is the GI gastrointestinal discomfort uh, from ingesting carbohydrates or fluids or solids during exercise and that's usually higher uh, in running than it is in cycling due to the mechanical movement of your stomach going up and down as you run uh, we did find that the GI discomfort was higher over the two-hour period in running than it was in cycling. Uh, so again, from a practical perspective, that would be something for, say, the triathletes, duathletes to consider um, eating, refueling, uh, drinking more on the bike and perhaps a little bit less on the run. And the effects, based on our data, the effects that having a little bit less on the run um, are going to be minimal compared to having less fuel uh, on the bike. <laughs> And now it's time for Physiology in Film. This is where we explore some of the physiology behind the blockbusters. So today, on the theme of metabolism, I'm going to talk about um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, whichever one you prefer. Obviously, it is quite food-related, so there's quite a lot of stuff I could be talking about to do with this film. Um, but I've picked the part where Violet Beauregard, who is quite a spoilt little lady, she is being shown a new type of chewing gum, which has three different courses. Um, and she's eating through all the chewing gum, lovely, lovely, lovely. But at the dessert stage, which is blueberry pie, the gum malfunctions and Violet basically turns a sort of purple-blue colour and then turns into a very large blueberry. 
Yep, I know the part. Yep, so um, obviously just for starters, I'm not investigating whether people can turn into a blueberry. I think that's quite um, quite physiologically impossible. Don't hold me to that though. <laughs> quite terrifying as a child to see that. Um, but what I'm really interested in is whether it's possible that consuming certain foods could actually change the colour of your skin. Oh, this is a good one. Okay. Um, yeah, hmm. so I don't know if when, when we were younger, 90s kids may also know, uh, Sunny Delight was quite quite yes. often consumed. yes. Yeah, and there was, there was a, that case. Exactly, there was a news story about a four-year-old whose skin actually turned yellow because she was drinking one and a half litres of Sunny Delight a day. Wow, that is that is quite a lot for a four-year-old. Exactly, it's actually more than your daily recommended liquid intake when oh you're four goodness. years old. So she was really going for it. Um, so first of all, obviously, yes, this is possible. And that's something called keratinosis. And so this is an orange discoloration of the skin and it's due to an excess of carotenoids in your diet. Uh, So high levels are found in things like carrots, squash and sweet potatoes. Luckily, this is actually harmless and reversible. But basically what happens is that these carotenoids are lipid soluble. So they dissolve in fat and they're deposited in the outermost layer of our skin. And so the colour change when this is happening is usually most pronounced in like our palms, our soles, our knees. And it can actually look quite similar to jaundice, but the whites of the eyes do not turn yellow. So if you turn yellow, check the whites of your eyes, because if they're also yellow, you've got jaundice. (laughs) It sounds like a horror film. (laughs) But if not, you've just got keratinosis, and that's fine. But what I'm really interested in is I want to know if you can turn purple, because Violet Beauregard turns purple, right? So I don't care about orange, I care about purple. Well, there is something that can make your skin turn blue. And this is called... This is food-related, you know, obviously, if you die, your skin can turn blue. Um, and this is called argyria. And this happens if you have a buildup of silver in your body and it can turn your eyes, Ooh. skin, internal organs, nails and gums a blue-grey colour, especially the areas of your body that are exposed to light. And this change in skin colour is permanent. Oh my goodness. And so this might happen if you take dietary supplements that contain silver or use medications or eye drops that have silver in. So this is something that used to be recommended. Um, Collodial silver is something that used to be in quite a lot of supplements. Now the FDA say that there's actually no proof that collodial silver or silver salts are safe and effective. So they don't know any benefits of swallowing them. So it's not really recommended that you take them. But when you swallow silver, it corrodes into your stomach and turns into silver salt. And this then travels through your bloodstream, ends up in your skin. And when exposed to sunlight, the silver salt turns back into silver, which turns your skin blue. So it's really similar to the process that silver goes through when used in black and white photography. So yeah, it does turn out that your skin can turn a blue-grey colour if you eat too much silver-related things. So yeah, possibly true. Not going to turn into a giant blueberry anytime soon. Good to but know. Yeah. Your skin can change colour depending on what you eat. So now it's time for physiology true or false. This is the part of the show where we take some common physiology myths and try and prove whether they're true or false. Okay, so I have chosen a kind of myth that breakfast kickstarts your metabolism, helping you to burn calories, stay healthy, um, or put another way, skipping breakfast promotes fat gain and increased weight gain. So true or false? I mean, I feel like you hear it all the time, but I'm not necessarily convinced that it's true. Okay, so this is actually a classic case of that common phrase that we maybe heard at university, correlation does not mean causation. Oh, my favourite phrase. Favourite phrase. Numerous studies have actually found that on average, those who eat breakfast are less likely to be overweight or obese. 
And then this has potentially led people to make the claim that eating breakfast causes weight loss or that skipping breakfast causes weight gain. Right, but maybe it's more to do with the fact that if you eat breakfast, you're not going to be hungry until lunchtime, yep. so you'll snack less. Or... Yeah, or maybe people who eat breakfast are on average a bit healthier. So in terms of metabolism, what seems to matter for, for metabolism is the total amount of food consumed throughout the day. So one study published by Kobayashi and colleagues in 2014 actually looked at the effects of skipping breakfast in a controlled environment and measured participants' energy metabolism and blood glucose. They found that those who skipped breakfast tended to compensate at lunch and dinner. So they had kind of more making up for those kind of lost calories at breakfast. And that breakfast skipping did not actually affect your 24-hour energy metabolism or your fat oxidation. Oh, interesting. So as long as you can control your hunger and sort of eat normally for the rest of the day, it's actually okay. Yeah. So this is quite good news for you breakfast skippers. Um, But they did find an overall increase in 24-hour average of blood glucose. So this is the kind of main sugar that the body makes from the food in your diet. So there we go. Skipping breakfast doesn't seem to change your average metabolism rate during the day. Myth busted. Well done. Myth busted. Fat. Uh, we have to redefine it, really, because we have to call it adipose tissue, because otherwise we think of fat as being the chemical fat, and that misleads us a lot, and we forget that it's a metabolically active tissue if we talk about fat. That was Barbara Cannon, Professor of Physiology at the Venner-Gren Institute, part of Stockholm University. Her research focuses on adipose tissue metabolism, how our bodies break down fat storage in order to produce energy. In particular, Barbara's work focuses on brown adipose tissue. But what is it? How does it differ from other types of adipose tissue? And what's its function? We have two colours of, at least two colours of adipose tissue. We have the white adipose tissue. And this is the stuff many of us anyway would like to get rid of. This is where we store our fat our energy, because this is the most efficient energy storage possible to have it in the form of lipids, fat. Now, the brown adipose tissue, on the other hand, is also metabolically very active, probably one of the most active tissues we have in our bodies. But its function is to use fat to combust it. A bit like when we're in a cold room and we turn up the thermostat, then we have to start burning more oil or wood or whatever it is we're heating our house with. And this is the same. When we heat ourselves up, we need to burn more fat. And this is burnt in the brown fat. Temperature regulation is surprisingly important. Many of us don't think about it. But really, if our body temperature drops or increases more than very small amount then it's deadly. So brown adipose tissue clearly has a very important role to play in thermoregulation by transferring energy from food into heat. Now when I think of fat or adipose tissue brown isn't really a colour that springs to mind so why is it brown? There are two main reasons for it being brown. One is that there's a tremendous blood supply to the tissue and this causes a reddish brown color there 
And the other is that the tissue, the cells in the tissue, the adipocytes, are full of mitochondria. And mitochondria, usually called the powerhouses of our cells, are where the energy is actually combusted. So we use a lot of the fat that's in our white adipose tissue. It's sent via the bloodstream to the brown, where it's then combusted. And when this happens, we need, of course, to provide the fat to the brown fat cells, but we also need to supply oxygen, and we need to remove carbon dioxide, and we need to remove the heat to spread it around the body, because if we didn't do that, well, there wouldn't be any point in the having the heat production, but also the tissue would actually boil because it has such a high rate of combustion. So this brown adipose tissue burns calories in order to create heat, which sounds like a pretty important function. But does everyone have brown adipose tissue? We do have it. Well, I'm not sure I do anymore because it's not really been seriously reported in people over 60. It used to be believed that it was only in human babies because it was very essential there, of course, because when you're born... It's probably the coldest shock that most of us will ever experience. You come from this nice, warm, intrauterine environment and become exposed, small, cold, and uh, you lose a lot of heat. So there it's very necessary. Then people thought it disappeared. However, in the last 12 years or so, a little bit more, we've realized mainly from studies of positron emission tomography, uh, that radiologists in hospitals realized that adult humans did have brown fat. They thought this was a nuisance. They didn't think it was interesting uh, because it interfered with their ability to diagnose the scans that they got. And they were looking for tumor metastases from cancer patients. So it was very important for them to get rid of the signal from the brown fat. And what they then realized was that if they put the patients in a warmer environment, the signal disappeared. And they started including this in their methods. And we noticed this and realized that this actually indicated there was active brown fat in adult humans. So coincidentally, from these positron emission tomographies, or PET scans, brown adipose tissue was rediscovered, if you like, in human adults. But where can we find this tissue in our bodies? It's in our neck region, shoulders, and along the spinal cord, and along the aorta to some extent. It doesn't look as brown as it does in, say, an experimental animal, because it is rather fat-filled partly at least because we keep ourselves rather warm. We don't like very much to freeze. It's not a very comfortable situation. So we put on an extra sweater or turn up the heat rather than freezing. So I think nowadays, particularly now when we all have central heating, we do see a much more fat-filled brown adipose tissue than we did 100 years ago. So when we're warm, this brown adipose tissue doesn't have as much work to do in converting food to energy in order to maintain our core body temperature, meaning that it's easier to detect. But let's say we turn down the temperature a bit. Would that activate our brown adipose tissue into burning more of that stored fat in order to keep us warm? And would the volume of this brown adipose tissue change at all? 
it would. It would certainly activate our brown fat. The problem is it's an uncomfortable situation for the first two or three weeks or maybe month while we're growing more of our brown fat. Because the interesting thing with brown fat, not only is it very active metabolically, but it's also very dynamic. It contains a lot of stem cells that can develop into new adipocytes. So if we're exposed in under a prolonged period for a cold environment, then certainly we get more brown fat and we get more brown fat cells that fill with mitochondria and that then make more heat. So after a freezing for a month, we're probably okay. But until then, it's not terribly comfortable. You shiver a lot and most of us don't appreciate that. And other than the cold, are there any factors that influence the amount of brown fat that individuals have? And could we utilise brown adipose tissue to burn some of the fat that is making us overweight? There are lots of reports about nutritional substances that can influence brown fat. But none of these that I've seen reported so far are sufficiently strong to be able to really influence, I think, the amount of physiologically meaningful brown fat that we would have. Um, So I think at the moment we're in a situation where it is only cold that does it very seriously. And I say this isn't terribly good. But of course, many drug companies and many researchers around the world are trying to find suitable substances that can both increase the amount of brown fat without the discomfort and can also switch it on so it's actually combusting fat because then we could at least theoretically combust the fat that is making us obese. I don't think it will seriously be able to treat massive obesity that's already occurred. But I do think it could have the possibility and the capacity to be able to limit our expansion as we age. So we've heard how brown adipose tissue, often referred to as the good fat, helps us to regulate our temperature by converting the food we eat into energy to keep us warm, and how one day this type of fat may help us to watch our waistlines. Now moving on to, oh my god, I can't believe it's a research study, but it actually is. So this is the part of the episode where we look at some of the weird and wonderful studies that have gone on in physiology. Now, not necessarily metabolism related, but food related. So okay, I, hope I will. Me... I will allow that. Thank you. Give me a pass on this yeah. one. Um, so, are you a fan of crisps? What a question! Or for our American cousins, of potato chips. <laughs> I am a fan of both chips and crisps. Uh, funnily enough, crisps have a pretty solid reputation for being crispy, as is in their name. Uh, and there's nothing worse than biting into a crisp to find out that it's like a bit soggy and stale. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? I would definitely agree. Um, and that's what the study I'm going to talk about today relates to. This is all to do with our brains and how we process the crunch of a crisp. How did you find this study? Fantastic, isn't it? It's fantastic. <laughs> so this study is called The Role of Auditory Cues in Modulating the Perceived Crispiness and Staleness of Potato Chips. Love it. This was done by Zampini and Spence. Uh, And basically, they're looking at whether the perception of crispiness and staleness of crisps or potato chips 
can be affected by modifying the sounds produced by the biting action. Essentially, their participants sat in a little stall, they had a crisp, and they were allowed to bite into that crisp with their front teeth, uh, one bite with their front teeth, and then they had to rate the crispiness or freshness using like a computer-based sort of quiz or something. But when they bit into the crisp, they were wearing headphones and there was a sort of <gasps> microphone Clever. that was recording the crisp. Yeah. So the crunch they would hear would be the crunch of their crisps. And it, sometimes it was the actual crunch. Sometimes the volume had been turned up on the crunch. And sometimes only high frequency sounds would be amplified. Uh, so they wanted to see whether this would make any difference. So yes, each crisp's crispiness, <laughs> this is a, quite a difficult <laughs> one, try saying that 10 times. <laughs> each crisp's crispiness was judged from a single headphone enhanced bite delivered with the front teeth. And this is because it maximised the uniformity of the participants' contact with each crisp, which is obviously very important as we're scientists. <laughs> um, previous research has actually shown that the sound of the first bite is what counts most for judging crisp crispiness. Interesting. Yeah, okay. great. So many great studies yeah. about crisp crispiness out yeah. there. It's fantastic. The crisps used were also very important because obviously not all crisps are the same. Not all crisps are born equal. But do you know which crisps are? Which crisps? Pringles. Oh. So they use Pringles. As, as crisp enthusiasts will know, the shape, size and texture of Pringles is highly regulated. Ah. So that's why they use Pringles. And so what they found is that the crisps were actually perceived as being crispier and fresher when either the overall sound level was increased or when just the high-frequency sounds were selectively amplified. This study kind of really shows that auditory cues have a really significant role in modulating the perception and evaluation of food stuff. It's something that's not really ever been thought about before. I think people often assume that, you know, it's all to do with, like, textural cues, what it, what you, like. what it looks like, yep. what you feel. But actually, it shows that what you hear has also got a huge impact on how fresh you think your crisps are so we don't just eat with our eyes we eat with our ears indeed we do especially when crisps are involved so that's all from us on metabolism so today we've learned all about brown fat also referred to as the good fat and we learned about how ingesting carbohydrate during exercise may increase performance in runners and cyclists. I've been Emily Wilde. And I've been Amy Warnock. And we've been Getting Physiological. This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society.